At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For an all-too-brief 45 minutes this afternoon, the dark and threatening streets of the American hellscape were a little safer, a little brighter. And then they let Donald Trump leave the courthouse, perhaps to the eternal regret of mankind. On this day of Trump arraignment syndrome, my ex-landlord has been charged with 34 counts of felony falsification of business records, each one part of a conspiracy to unlawfully, quote, influence the 2016 presidential election. That is the headline. Trump is being charged not just with falsifying business records, but with falsifying business records in order to illegally influence the 2016 presidential election. Trump is being prosecuted for election interference. Trump, or as we may now call him, the defendant, said nothing in New York. All we saw was him scowling on the way into the courtroom, then peering through bloodshot eyes towards the judge, then the always alarming shot of his hairstyle as seen from the vantage point of the back of his head as he left for LaGuardia, where alone and without the former first lady, the Flotus for some reason, oh right, sorry, Trump slowly climbed the stairs of the jetway and for a brief moment his flapping extra, 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 extra long red tie teased us with the thought that it might finally get caught in his plane's rear wing horizontal stabilizer. Trump is being charged not for the payoff to Stormy Daniels, nor in a new development for a $30,000 payoff to a Trump Tower doorman who thought he knew something about a child Trump had fathered out of wedlock. That's right. The case now has a once rumored Trump love child. No, Trump is not being charged 
for love or money. He's being charged for, as the DA said, trying to illegally influence the 2016 presidential election and in doing so violating New York state election law to conspire to promote a candidate by unlawful means and exceeding the political contribution cap by paying to suppress the Stormy Daniels story to deceive the public. Trump has been indicted 34 felonies for trying to defraud and to conceal a separate crime when he reimbursed his lawyer, Michael Cohen, in a deal prosecutors alleged was reached inside the Oval Office to hide those Daniels payments as legitimate business expenses for legal services. And if those business expenses are business expenses, America is in a new and different world of hiring porn stars so their services can help you write off. And at the exact hour that Trump was entering the 15th floor courthouse at 100 Center Street in Manhattan, his sons were sharing on several social media sites a British tabloid story about the daughter of the judge in the case, complete with her photo, doxing her and launching a phony conspiracy theory that because of her work with a digital firm that worked with the Kamala Harris and Joe Biden presidential campaigns, this is... As Donald Trump in his paranoia and megalomania believes everything else in the history of the world is a plot against him. They doxed the judge's daughter. While Junior and Fredo were posting, the district attorney's office was handing out multiple copies in the courtroom of the various online threats of violence and terrorism that Trump has made in the days and weeks leading up to today. The baseball bat image, the death and destruction warning, calling the district attorney a, quote, animal and presumably others. Nobody is sure if the other posts included the attacks Trump made not four hours before the hearing began against Judge Juan Marchand himself, calling him, quote, highly partisan and, quote, an unfair disaster belonging to a family of, quote, well-known Trump haters, including, quote, his daughter who worked for Kamala and now the Biden-Harris campaign kangaroo court. Judge Marchand showing the kind of restraint that you and I and most of the planet's 8,025,853,000 other people would not, did not immediately impose a gag order, nor even a specific set of warnings against Trump and what he might say tonight or going forward. Marchand did warn both sides not to make any statement that incites violence and to tamp down the rhetoric. As to rhetoric, Alvin Bragg promptly gave a measured and quiet and even dull news conference. Trump canceled his reported plans to talk to the media on the way in and again on the way out of the courtroom. His attorneys, though, gave a bizarre and ill-fated news conference in the middle of the throng outside the courthouse as media outnumbered protesters and even passersby by perhaps 100 to 1. At this press conference, the new guy, Todd Blanche, had um, a problem um, about speaking um, in public um, without um, interrupting himself frequently with the um verbal crunch um. And I wondered if this was the best attorney of all the guys they considered, what kind of impression the other guys um, left. Meanwhile, Joe Tacopina said that this was the day, quote, the rule of law died in this country as a spectator standing behind him held a mannequin's leg over Tacopina's head 
like this was a live revival of the movie A Christmas Story and Trump had just gotten a major award. Yet inside the court, everything was apparently businesslike, and while Trump may have tried to stare daggers at Judge Marchand through what had become his own slit-like bloodshot eyes, Trump evidently pleaded not guilty time and time again to charge after charge after charge. Thank you, Nancy Faust. It is certain, though in what order no one can yet say, that Trump's lawyers, and how many of them there are, no one can also say, will move to dismiss the indictment, move to dismiss each charge in the indictment, move to have the judge recuse, move for a change of venue. Trump himself argued to go voluntarily to Staten Island, which indicates just how desperate he really is. If they cannot kill this thing before it starts, the trial will unfold in the midst of the heart of the presidential campaign. The trial would begin, per the court schedule, at the earliest next January. The next pretrial hearing isn't scheduled until December. The first Republican presidential primary debate will be in Milwaukee in August. We learned one other new thing at this hearing and with this filing, the star witness for the prosecution would not be the former Trump attorney, Michael Cohen. It would be former National Enquirer publisher David Pecker. It is Pecker who set up the process for which the prosecution alleges all 34 crimes were committed, starting at a meeting with Trump and Cohen in August 2015, moving on to a, quote, series of discussions among the three men in 2016 to suppress first the Karen McDougal story and then the Stormy Daniels case. And now we know the story of the doorman and the apparently apocryphal Trump love child. Then, post-election was the meeting at which Trump personally thanked Pecker, and in the summer of 2017, he took Pecker to dinner to, quote, thank him for his help during the campaign. All of this, if it leads to Trump being convicted, invites the future headline, Pecker Screws Trump. Believe it or not, all this has been the serious part of the day. The rest of the day descended quickly into farce upon farce. The protests, which Trump presumably envisioned would be a kind of litigation version of January 6th, instead turned out to have been so poorly planned and so poorly received that the star complainer fled without anybody in the crowd really knowing that she had been there. This is Marjorie Taylor Greene's speech as it would have been heard by the crowd assembled by the New York Young Republicans Club. After about 15 minutes of that, Barney Rubble left as quickly as she could in a white SUV, not a Bronco, and was interviewed live from the back seat by a performer from the Right Side News, RSN, named Brian Glenn. And if we didn't already know that Brian Glenn and Marjorie Taylor Greene are dating, we do now because the interview ended with him giving her a kiss on the cheek. So, okay. all right. Bye. Bye-bye. See ya. All right. In response, on behalf of a mortified world, I say... 
Ew. There was an unexpected appearance at that protest, and again, each protester had his own supply of maybe 10, maybe 100 reporters. It was by the last person Trump would have presumably asked to attend, other than Stormy Daniels and the apocryphal Trump love child. It was Congressman George Santos. As he grandstanded for reporters, Santos apparently discovered that he is afraid of crowds. And after asking everybody to move back, he too quickly left the scene. The Trump campaign is now selling what it calls official mugshot T-shirts, even though it seems evident that no mugshot was taken. Certainly no mugshot was released. Certainly Trump's people would not do anything with a mugshot in which Trump's eyes looked like he hadn't slept in 24 days. Tiny slits rimmed in red. Lastly, Many observers noted that as Trump entered the courtroom, he experienced something he probably has not for years. Nobody opened the door open for him, nor held it open for him. On the other hand, in conclusion, I think the importance of this day, even if these charges were to get thrown out tomorrow morning, is that they opened a metaphorical door to all the other indictments. Fittingly, in terms of real news, in terms of other indictments, the first arraignment of a former president of the United States, only because Ford pardoned the guy who made him president, Nixon, the first arraignment of a former president of the United States was actually overshadowed by the third major story of the week from the world of the special counsel Jack Smith and It's Only Tuesday. A federal appeals court in D.C. has rejected an emergency motion from Trump's lawyers to block key Trump aides from testifying to the special counsel's grand jury. In another series of up all night at the court, the lawyers filed late Monday night and the three judge appeals panel ruled early Tuesday morning. It's sealed, so we don't know officially who is and isn't now without a way to get out of testifying to the special counsel grand jury, but putting together bits and pieces of the thing, it seems to cover Mark Meadows, Dan Scavino, Stephen Miller, Robert O'Brien, John Ratcliffe, and Ken Cuccinelli. That is a lot of testimony, and it all seems to pertain to that half of Smith's case, which seems to be lagging behind the other. Meadows and company would be coup witnesses, not Mar-a-Lago document witnesses. And we found out only Sunday that Smith has a paper trail at Mar-a-Lago, courtesy a Trump assistant who used to do his emailing for Trump and video of another assistant actually moving the boxes. And yesterday we learned that Smith will get the testimony from Trump's Florida Secret Service detail. That's the real story of Stormy Daniels' indictment palooza. It was, I think, clear even before the hearing began. After days and weeks of threats and insults and terroristic warnings, Trump inadvertently confessed on his social media site just how serious this all is. So serious that it has even pierced his own self-induced bubble of invincibility. At 1.22 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, he wrote on his website, quote, Heading to Lower Manhattan, the courthouse seems so surreal. Wow, they are going to arrest me. Can't believe this is happening in America. To translate, Trump admits, and this is ultimately why today mattered. Trump admits that he has had the crap scared out of him.
Tomorrow's brand new edition of this podcast will obviously have Trump's reaction if it actually happens from Mar-a-Lago. On another note here, the ratings for the 60 Minutes edition Sunday, in which Leslie Stahl might as well have not done any research at all and certainly did not seem to really comprehend who Marjorie Barney Rubble was, it earned terrible ratings. The live plus DVR rating of over 8 million, down by about a third from the previous week's episode of 60 Minutes. The live only viewers, those who actually watched on Sunday night, they finished at an unbelievable number. 6.66 million. And also on the subject of TV, it was more than just the attempt to fill time with moving pictures of ever-exciting highway traffic. Monday's wall-to-wall coverage of Trump in a car, then in a plane, then in another car on the cable networks was more than just showing the audience some shiny objects. CNN in particular is trying to cozy up to the Trump audience. I have seen this before firsthand when executives at MSNBC 20 years ago tried to move to the right of Fox and hired a psycho named Michael Savage to be the centerpiece of their new ultra-fascist network. They paid a big price. Things I promised not to tell coming up. And next, a sad anniversary here. April 4th is the day my mother died. That's next. This is Countdown. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. A little different format today because you look up one day and it turns out it's the anniversary of your mother passing and you do the math and it's 14 years. My mother died right after my 50th birthday, 50 years, and she's gone nearly a third as long as she and I were both here together. It is startling. I find I've been bringing my mom up a lot these last few years, mostly because any of my friends, my contemporaries, who have not yet lost both parents, are sadly doing so now. 
And there's something I learned when my mom died on April 4th, 2009, and then my dad died on March 13th, 2010. And if you've gone through this lately, or even not lately, and it still hurts, this might help if you have yet to go through it. Write this down somewhere. First of all, you are never too old to be an orphan. Do not be shocked if it feels like you are an orphan. Secondly, if you think you have come to terms with the loss of a parent and things are getting better inside, utilize my experience. In my case, neither death was a surprise. I was prepared for both, and I leveled off from the immediate grief surprisingly quickly, and then, a week or so later, in each case, I collapsed, weeping. Not when it happened, but like 10 days later. And finally, with a little introspection, I recalled something that I have since told 100 people, and they've all literally said, yeah, that's it. When you are a kid, unless you have suffered direct trauma, death, physical harm, abuse, the first day you actually understand that this is not the Garden of Eden, that day is when you put two and two together and you realize that your parents are going to die and that that could happen at any time. It is your original fear. It is burned into a part of your brain that had, until that moment, nothing else in it. And when it finally happens in real life, whether you are six or you are 60, you suffer the pain of the event as you interpret it in real time, hopefully as an adult. And then you also suffer the pain that you feared first when you were four or five or six and you realized someday it would happen. That fear has sat untouched and unrelieved, and it is as bad as you thought it was going to be that childhood day so many years ago. And if you can recognize that, it should ease a little bit, as it did for me. Of course, you're hurting again. You have lost mom or dad. And... Separately, six-year-old you has lost mom or dad. Realize that and the childhood pain will pass or it will lessen or it will just merge with the pain of today and you can get about the business of healing. So back to my mom. My childhood fear was oddly a little easier because the night before I started the fourth grade, I swear this is true, and this makes me seven and a half years old, I was sitting on my mom's bed at the Dobbs Ferry Hospital, north of New York City. She had phlebitis, and one leg was swollen to what seemed to me to be the size of Manitoba in Canada. And she said, and you will immediately recognize where I get my sense of drama from, Keith, this could be the last time you see me alive. And I went, eh, I don't think so. And then in the car on the way home, my dad reassured me, eh, I don't think so. It's serious. I'm not going to kid you. People do die from this. She's not going to. The swelling is like half of what it was yesterday. The doctors told me she'll be home tomorrow or the day after. You know her. She kind of enjoys people worrying about her. And why not? She's your mom. Worry about her. She'll love it. And she loved it. The damnedest thing was that was in 1966. Mom outlived her warning to me by nearly 43 years. But when she died, she died in Dobbs Ferry Hospital, the same place where she made her warning. Of course, it was a different century. 
This remembrance is not going to be her medical history, though Lord knows Mom was the world's foremost authority on her own health, nor is it going to consist of me telling you she was the proverbial saint, although I can hear her saying, Go ahead, I'm not going to disagree with you. Who's going to contradict you? It is not going to be a full biography. Suffice to say, she was a gifted preschool teacher and a legendary authority on opera, and somewhere she remains genuinely disappointed that I did not get Placido Domingo to sing at her memorial service. Instead of the full medical history, I thought it was best to focus on something for which she became and remained pretty famous literally until the day she died. My mother was one of the best-known baseball fans in this country. She attended Yankees games from 1934 through 2004, and she watched or listened to everyone that she did not go to up until the last year of her life. My guess is she went to at least 1,500 Yankee games, most of them in box 47E in the Yankee Stadium that preceded the current one. And this was the effect. In March of 2010, the Mets manager, Jerry Manuel, came over to me before his team's exhibition game against the Detroit Tigers in Lakeland, Florida, and he asked me, how's your mother? And he was the fifth or sixth active baseball figure to do so in that month while I was at spring training. They averaged at least one or two a month baseball figures asking about how my mom was for about 14 years. One day I popped out into the Yankees dugout before a playoff game. I'm guessing this is 2005. And there was Al Leiter of the Yankees talking to two other pitchers, Scott Proctor and the future Hall of Famer Randy Johnson. And Al suddenly stopped and looked at me and said, what? Did you hear me telling them about your mother? Sure enough, I had interrupted him as he told Randy Johnson and Scott Proctor the Chuck Knobloch story, which I will tell you in a moment. But after that game ended and the Yankees were eliminated from the playoffs in that game, I went into the clubhouse to wish my friends among the players a good offseason. And Randy Johnson shook my head and he got his little suitcase on wheels and he left the clubhouse. This guy's like eight feet tall and he had a little tiny suitcase on wheels and it looked adorable. Anyway, about 90 seconds later, Randy Johnson comes back into the clubhouse and comes over to me. I'm glad you're still here. I forgot to tell you that story about your mother is wonderful and it's very warm. It made my day. Thanks for sharing it. Have a good winter. That was the effect my mother had on people. And four years later, I guess not six hours before mom died, a New York Yankees executive made reference to that which had made mom famous in the ballpark the day she died. And trust me, mom loved being famous in the ballparks. And finally, the story, which I have not told you, not in full. My mother's fame was achieved in the way it was on June 17th, 2000, when the sudden and growing inability of the ill-fortuned Yankees second baseman Chuck Knobloch to make any kind of successful throw, easy or hard, to first base, culminated in him picking up a squib off the bat of Greg Norton of the Chicago White Sox and throwing it not back towards first base, but instead off the roof of the Yankees' dugout, where it somehow picked up a little reverse English and then smacked my mother right in the bridge of her glasses as she sat a couple of rows back of the dugout. Chuck Knobloch was in the middle of losing his beloved father at that time, and though I thought I got what that meant to him, I didn't really understand it until the days I began to write this 
and I struggled to find the right keys, let alone the right words. In any event, for those three days in the year 2000, Mom was on one or both of the covers of the New York Post and the New York Daily News and New York Newsday. She was somewhere in almost every newspaper in America. That is not hyperbole. It is literal fact. And all this happened while I was the host of the baseball game of the week for Fox. Literally sitting in a studio in Los Angeles, watching a bank of monitors with a different game on every monitor and recognizing instantly what must have happened based on a lifetime of knowing the camera angles in Yankee Stadium, the ballpark in which I grew up. I said, maybe too matter-of-factly, that probably hit my mother. The crew laughed, and I repeated, no, that, that probably hit my mother. More laughs. Then the next shot was of an older woman being led up the aisle towards an aid station, and it was my mother. End of laughter. So moments later, when the announcers Joe Buck and Tim McCarver threw to me for a Fox game break, I narrated that exact highlight, and I said that Chuck Knobloch's throwing problems had now gotten personal, that he had now hit my mother. Her glasses are broken, Joe and Tim, and she's going home, but I've just spoken to her. She's okay. Joe, Tim? There was silence from their booth at Dodger Stadium. Finally, Tim McCarver said, what? How is that? I'm speechless. Is that one of Keith's jokes? Keith, are you still there? Was that really your mother? I'm here, Tim. My goodness, is she? What are the odds against? Tim, she's been going to Yankee games since 1934 and nothing bad's ever happened to her. I'd say the odds are pretty good. But is she? She's fine. She'll be back in that same seat tomorrow. She's a gamer. Also, she asked me to tell you she likes you better now that you're with the Yankees and not the Mets. After that, I never saw Tim McCarver again without him asking how my mother was. In fact, he called me after his game ended to make sure she was okay that day. The next week, Mom and I pre-taped an interview for the pregame show. I was in our L.A. studios, and Mom was in my childhood home. I concluded the interview by noting my status as a memorabilia collector, and I asked Mom if she would give me the baseball with which she was hit. She said I could bid on it like anybody else. For the rest of that season of 2000, anytime Fox broadcast a game from Yankee Stadium, Mom got on TV. They gave her a Fox hat to make her easier to spot in the crowd. We even talked about her during the World Series broadcasts that fall, during which began the ritual that continues even to this day. 14 years after her death, 23 years after this happened, the ritual continues. Players, players who were at the game, players who only heard about the game, players of all kind, players who were not born when it happened. They asked me about my mom and the Chuck Knobloch throw. Since the day it happened, Chuck Knobloch himself has been mortified by it. I was told not long after that he was really worried that I thought he had done it deliberately. As I pointed out to him some years later when we finally got to talk about it, if there was one thing we could know for sure was that if he had been aiming for my mom, he would have missed her. Chuck laughed. I said to him, you made her famous. She loved it. She couldn't have been happier if they had let her pinch hit for you. It was my mother who was the fan in our family. My dad liked the game enough, but the Yankees traded his favorite player, and on his deathbed a year later, he was still mad at them for doing that. This happened late in 1948. 
The player's name was Steve Suchok. My dad's next favorite player was George Sternweiss. The Yankees traded him in 1950. This led my father to say to me, yeah, you're a Yankee fan now. Watch out. They're going to betray you eventually like they betrayed me. Then they did. So dad wasn't much of a fan, and it was mom who introduced me to baseball. And in my teenaged years, when we went nearly every day, it was she who trundled me and my sister to the ballparks. It was on her TV that I came to love the sport, and by her side that I began to understand it. And sitting next to her, that's when I began to understand that I was not going to be any damn good playing baseball, and if I wanted in, maybe I better try talking about it. Thus was born a career. Obviously, at least half of the ham in me comes from her. She was an aspiring ballerina, and when I keep talking and talking for good or for ill, that's pretty much all her. What I do not have evidence of are the thousand hours she spent driving me to and from school so I could work on the newspaper or announce the hockey game or get to Yankee Stadium early to take photographs of the players, to meet a few of them, to interview them when I was a teenager. In retrospect, it's obvious she was, to adapt a phrase, a media mom. She was taken by the proverbial sudden illness in the best of senses. She had no apparent symptoms until two weeks before she died. She was not severely afflicted until 10 days before she died. The treatment she received lessened her pain, and she never awakened and thus never had to hear, nor did any of us have to say to her, Mom, you have terminal cancer. I'm not going to give you the harangue about how you need to go see your doctor because not feeling so bad does not mean you are not sick, though you might want to keep that in mind. I do have one other story about mom and baseball that I love telling, and this is the way to finish this reminiscence on this anniversary. It's about George Steinbrenner. In 2000, the year mom got hit by the throw, I had the privilege of being the reporter for Fox as the commissioner of baseball presented the Yankees with their third straight world championship trophy after they beat the Mets in the World Series. George Steinbrenner, who I had known since 1973 and who had inexplicably become the kind of friend you greet with a double hand handshake or a hug, was standing next to me as we waited for an on-field interview to end and the presentation of the award to begin. And Steinbrenner, for that year, for some reason, was incredibly emotional. Is your mother here to see this? He said. And I said, George, we're at Shea Stadium. She had to drive here for two seasons in 1974 and 1975 when you were refurbishing Yankee Stadium. She hates this place more than you do. She told me she wouldn't have come here even if you let her play third base. George's mouth shook and tears welled in his eyes. And finally, he blurted out, I love her even more now. Mom had that kind of effect on people. I'll be back with things I promise not to tell after this. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. 
If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Still ahead on Countdown, hey, I don't know if you heard about this, but Trump came back into town yesterday, like flew in for this indictment court hearing. Was that on TV or anything? Oh my God, here we go again. Once again, MSNBC and CNN are both tipping their hands about their readiness to go right wing if necessary to protect their money. I know what I'm seeing because I was there the last time they tried this. The Michael Savage story coming up in Things I Promise Not to Tell. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need. You can help every dog has its day to South L.A. and Cuda, a big, happy guy, even though he spent two of his three years on this earth in that shelter, one of the loudest and most crowded in this country. Standard tongue hanging out, happy big boy. But Cuda seems finally to have given up. He suddenly becomes so stressed he's spinning around in his cage. We need to get him out of there with a home, an adopter or foster or our pledges so a rescue will pull him and save him. Look for Cuda on my Twitter feeds. Your retweet can also help him. I thank you and Cuda thanks you. Finally, to the number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me and things I promise not to tell. And I've been warning you about CNN and Chris Licht, the former Joe Scarborough hitman, who when we worked together at MSNBC, I used to think ate paste. He was hired to run CNN by its new right wing owners in order to neutralize it. A MAGA broke into Nancy Pelosi's home, nearly killed her husband, planned to hold her hostage until she told the truth. CNN put on the Kentucky fascist Congressman James Comer, who explained people in both parties should tone down the rhetoric. Yesterday, Trump flies from Florida to New York, in fact, to go to his nightmarishly decorated crap shack a block from my back door. And the flight takeoff and the landing and the motorcade are covered live on CNN and MSNBC like like Trump was dead, frankly. And I use that analogy because I was flashed back to June 5th, 2004. The then new president of MSNBC has us all in there on a Saturday because it's the 60th anniversary of D-Day, the Normandy invasion, and he is trying to make a name for himself. This guy, Rick Kaplan, is going to kill it. He sent me to interview Yogi Berra about being on one of the landing crafts at Normandy, and he's got Tom Brokaw live on Omaha Beach with somebody, and all of us anchors are in there covering the breaking news of something that happened 60 years earlier. 
And we're in the meeting, the last meeting before we go on the air in the afternoon. And Kaplan is just starting to warm up and to yell at us for no reason, which was his one play. When somebody leans in through the door to the meeting room and says, hey, uh, Ronald Reagan just died. And Kaplan tries to pretend that nothing has changed. And he goes on explaining, oh, we're going to go live to Brokaw. We'll go live to Brokaw. While there's still some light in Normandy, he said. And I raise my hand and I say... Uh, Rick, we kind of got to all go all Reagan, you know? I mean, he was the president. And Kaplan starts arguing the point with me. And the room just stares at him. It's a news network. A living ex-president isn't living anymore. And then he says, How about half an hour of Reagan and then half an hour of D-Day and then, then a half an hour of Reagan and then... The room now goes silent. Finally crestfallen and this has taken five or ten minutes he says okay all reagan and the next thing i know i'm anchoring chopper coverage of ronald reagan's dead body being driven through southern california and that made sense yesterday trump in a car well actually trump in a car then trump in a plane then trump in another car no traffic accidents no protests no crowds no impact on new york city at all no actual news out of that clown until the next day, and you are looking live at the FDR drive. Christ. I'll repeat my point. This is no boating accident. The reason Glicht is in charge of CNN is virtually every mainstream media organization in this country has already had the meeting they had at CNN. Let's discuss how, if America goes fully fascist in 2025 or earlier, we can still protect this company's profits. I say this not merely because I know most of the people running the mainstream media organizations, but because these conversations have already happened, and they happened long ago. Largely because the first not-white-guy president was elected just seven years and two months after 9-11. We forget how seriously and terrifyingly we already have teetered on the edge of full-fledged fascism here after the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. 9-11 happened between my two tenures at MSNBC, but I returned a year and a half after it happened. And by then, the place I went back to work had already hired a sort of Alex Jones prototype radio host named Michael Savage, and it was slowly trying to build him into the host of a weeknight show. Savage was a homophobe plus an equal opportunity bigot. His real name was Michael Weiner, and all you need to know about him is that he was a Weiner who pretended he was a savage. What happened to him when they tried to stick him into prime time and what he said that led to his firing and the blowing up of the let's out Fox Fox News plan of the then NBC chairman and CEO Bob Wright is a great story I will relish telling you in a moment. But first, a little context to this. MSNBC and Fox News launched within weeks of each other in 1996 and for a while, in fact, until I left MSNBC in December 1998, we were ahead of Fox in many time periods, though CNN crushed us both. Then Fox ascended, then came 9-11, and then Bob Wright thought he saw his opportunity. All you need to know about him is that after he left the position of running NBC, he became a contributor to Fox Business. 
At MSNBC, Wright gave Oliver North his own show and Laura Ingram her own show. He had given a program to Alan Keyes, a Republican who somehow managed to lose Senate races in two different states and washed out three different times in Republican presidential primaries. His MSNBC show consisted of him giving speeches. Though he was alone in a studio with no audience, Alan Keyes could not break himself of his habit of spraying the room with his eyes. The viewer at home would see him looking off camera to his left, then looking at the camera, then looking off camera to the right. He went back and forth like a sprinkler. I remember once looking at him and yelling at the TV, Hey Al, over here, I'm the one in the middle. Bob Wright also brought in Joe Scarborough, long before Scarborough knew how to disguise much of his fascism. Bob Wright fired Phil Donahue, although to be fair, that was really more about money than it was about politics. But he replaced Donahue's show with what was supposed to be a high-speed, slightly right-leaning newscast produced by a Fox News refugee. It was called Countdown with Sam Donaldson. And needless to say, the right-leaning idea went horribly, horribly wrong after they changed it to Countdown with Keith Olbermann. MSNBC's lineup was remarkably unstable at that time. I had hosted its 8 p.m. show from October 1st, 1997 through the beginning of December 1998, and then I left to go back to sports and baseball at Fox. Then the 8 p.m. hour was hosted by John Hockenberry for three months. Then Ollie North got his shot. A month later, they started having rotating liberals co-host with Ollie North. In April 1999, it became North and Paul Begala. That was five shows in five months. In May, they cut North and Begala to half an hour. In June, they canceled them and replaced them with a half-hour Ann Curry documentary. In early 2000, Curry was expanded to an hour. But then in May, Curry was replaced by Lori Dew. In August 2000, they started their version of Dateline called MSNBC Investigates. In September, they cut that show to four days a week and launched a vanished white woman of the week show actually called Missing Persons with Diane Diamond, which they canceled after one episode. And then they put MSNBC Investigates back on. Then they canceled that a month later to make room for a newscast with Forrest Sawyer. Then after the uncertainty of the 2000 election, they refocused that as Decision 2000 with Forrest Sawyer. In January 2001, they canceled Forrest Sawyer and put MSNBC Investigates back on for the third different time. Then in July, they moved the news with Brian Williams from 9 p.m. to 8 p.m. Then the next September, they moved Brian to CNBC and instead launched Phil Donahue's show in the 8 p.m. MSNBC slot. Then in March 2003, they off Donahue. They started Countdown, originally with Lester Holt, Pat Buchanan, and Bill Press. Then after the war started and there wasn't anything to count down to anymore, they hired me to host Operation Iraqi Freedom. And after one week of that show, they launched Countdown with Keith Olbermann. That's 20 different shows or formats in four years and four months. So Bob Wright's next primetime ideas, and you got to give him this much, He had a lot of primetime ideas, and virtually all of them made it onto TV. His next set of ideas was a primetime lineup of me doing the news at 8, then Scarborough at 9, then Jesse Ventura at 10, and then this Michael Savage character. They began this plot by giving Savage his own show an hour every Saturday afternoon on March 8, 2003. Everybody agreed it was crap. On radio, Savage sounded kind of threatening, I guess, a kind of red meat fascist. But on TV, taking calls from viewers 
in a tiny little cramped-looking studio somewhere in the Bay Area. He looked small and whiny and kvetchy, and he was wearing a bad toupee and a suit that was far worse than that. When I was negotiating my return to MSNBC in 2003, I got the executive in charge of primetime to put it in my contract that Michael Savage would never appear on my newscast in any form unless it was an obituary, open and shut. But then on Friday, April 25th, 2003, I came into work. We were about a month into the show, and there in the computer rundown of my newscast was a pre-recorded Michael Savage commentary. As soon as he saw I was in the office, the executive producer they had hired from Fox, a cross-eyed chain smoker named Dennis Murray, pushed his way into my office and said, we have to run a Michael Savage commentary. There's also a mandatory Matt Drudge soundbite. This is per Phil Griffin, so don't think you can call Phil to get it dropped. He's not in New York. He's not reachable. And he left. I called my agent. I told her the story, and I matter-of-factly asked, if they don't drop it, I have to walk out, don't I? Mind you, she had just exhausted herself negotiating my extremely unlikely return to MSNBC. She didn't flinch. Of course you have to walk out. But first, call Phil Griffin's office and tell him you're leaving. Give him a chance. It'll help when you sue them. It was breach of contract. I find dramatic, life-changing, and potentially costly stuff like that is usually way easier if you have the high moral ground. So I called Griffin's office. His assistant said he was in Washington in meetings and could not be reached. I said, well, you should reach somebody there. Tell them, I just called a car to take me home because my contract says you can't put Michael effing Savage on my newscast and somebody just did. Nice working with you all and tell Phil to give me a call sometime. Sometime was three minutes later. Griffin, who frequently panicked, outdid himself on this call. You, you would really walk out, buddy? I said it was in the contract. I was putting my pens and books in a box as we spoke. Uh, 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 uh. I told him he was repeating himself. Finally, he said, okay, uh, okay, uh, 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 okay, buddy. C can you just, can you look at the commentary and, and find me a reason, uh, 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 a reason that isn't about politics, uh, why it shouldn't run? I said, you mean like video quality or racist language or something? Phil Griffin's voice brightened. Yeah, good. Racist language or something. That'd be great. Call me back. The executive producer and I went to the video edit suite where a guy named Brendan Omelia was cutting out the time Savage had stumbled or flubbed while recording this nonsense. First of all, I said to the ex-Fox guy who was the producer, Michael Savage is wearing a brown shirt and a brown tie on top of his brown shirt. He is literally dressed like a Hitler brown shirt. The editor, Omelia, played the whole video for me, and as I dialed Phil Griffin's cell, I started laughing. I said, even for racist, homophobic crap, this thing makes no sense. He just keeps saying, George W. Bush is right because George W. Bush, because he's right. He looks small and whiny and convection. He's got a bad toupee and a worse suit. We wouldn't run this as a soundbite in his obituary, and the lighting is terrible, and he's dressed as a brown shirt. Apparently, that was enough. Phil Griffin ordered the piece dropped from my show. I think they ran it on Scarborough show at 9 p.m. In fact, I think I might be wrong. They ran two or three savage commentaries on Scarborough shows. I know they intended to. God knows I never watched Scarborough show. Happily, this was about the time Michael Savage ended his own TV career. On Saturday, July 5th, 2003, show 15 out of a series of checks notes, 15... 
Michael Savage was on the air live on MSNBC when a caller baited him about gays. Savage replied, quote, so you're one of them sodomists. Are you a sodomite? The caller said yes. Oh, you're one of them sodomites. Continuing the quote, you should only get AIDS and die, you pig. How's that? Why don't you see if you can sue me, you pig? You got nothing better to put me down, you piece of garbage. You have nothing better to do today. Go eat a sausage and choke on it. Get trichinosis. End quote. End Michael Savage. And by the way, that quote that I just read, that was way better than the commentary they had had him record for Countdown. Two days later on Monday, Eric Sorensen, the president of MSNBC, and he was president of all the boring things Bob Wright didn't want to be bothered with at MSNBC, Eric Sorensen fired Michael Savage. Sorensen, for whom I worked in Los Angeles in local news and who consulted on my show on current TV as recently as 2011, took me for a drink because he needed to tell somebody what happened next after he fired Michael Savage. As soon as the Savage firing was announced, Sorensen said, the phone rang in his office and it was Bob Wright, the chairman of NBC. Did you have to fire him, Eric? Wright asked in his nasal Long Island accent. And Sorensen said, he answered, yes, I literally had to. I had to fire him. Remember the clause in his contract? There are 40 phrases he's not allowed to use on the show. It literally says, if you say any of the following 40 things, you will be automatically fired for cause and get no money. Remember? Remember what number four on that list is? Number four is, quote, I hope you get AIDS and die, unquote. And then he said, I hope you get AIDS and die. Bob, I literally had to fire him. I had to fire him. It's in the contract. Eric Sorensen told me there was a long pause on the other end of the phone, and then Bob Wright said, in anticipation of all that we have seen in television news since, all the meetings about what happens if the country goes fully fascist, and NBC and CNN and CBS and ABC all want to protect their profits and do the devil's work, Bob Wright said after a long pause to Eric Sorensen, who had just fired Michael Savage because it was in the contract, Bob Wright said softly and sadly, but Eric, did you have to fire him? I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. Near the credits, most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. They are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections, such as in our segment about the dog in need, Cuda, have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2. It was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was Richard Lewis. He was chosen for a reason. He once had a very memorable phone call with my mom. Ask him about it. Everything else is pretty much my fault, so that's countdown for this, the 819th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Don't forget, keep arresting him while we still can. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow, but it's a good bet that I will revise this one sometime today after the court hearing or 
whenever, if he tries to flee, who knows. So subscribe if you are not already subscribed and check your notifications like late in the afternoon and fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA.